I've been playing with my new recording setup, so I hope I sound okay. Yeah, you sound pretty good. I'm I'm pretty stoked about it. Maybe a little more than I should be, Drew. Which microphone are you using right now? This is the 87, the Shure Beta 87A. Cool, yeah. I played around with the Beta 58. I just didn't care for some of the EQ and the, I guess, the background noise that came in with it. So I'm going to stick with the 87, I think. 87 it is. Simple answer right there. I think that's the one that Marco Arment wrote as his one of his best microphones in that microphone mega review that he did a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it's his number one. That's what I use as well, and I ended up snatching it. And it's, it's a great microphone. I really love them a lot. Well, best of luck to you today as we record. <laughs> if everything breaks and falls apart, we know why. Yep. Yep, we'll see. If and, and here's the fun part for me. I'm trying out an entirely new setup that I know you will be dealing with before I ever deal with it. So We actually have a little bit of follow-up today to talk about. Scary. In regards to paper. I think you and I have both been getting some messages about people switching from task management systems just straight back to pen and paper based on your experience doing that. And that is still your experience, right? You're still going strong? Yes. I, I've i split some of it out into a digital stance as well. Like there's a little bit of my longer term things. Longer term things. Well, there's a real descriptor content thing for you. Mm-hmm. Very long. The thing I've been seeing is that I need to have some of those pieces broken out for a long term cold storage, if you will. And I need those to be in... A digital form, but I've been seeing a lot of emails and, and messages here and there with people that are that are going down this path. Yeah. The one that came to mind very recently was a social networking friend of mine, Chris Bowler. And he just sent me a message, a Twitter DM saying, you and Joe asked for others to chime in if they've made the move from digital task management to pen and paper. And that's me. And it's actually something that he's been writing a lot about. So I'll add a link in the show notes to some of the stuff that he's written on his changes to pen and paper. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting. It's definitely something that is a common experience for many people right now, I think, which is weird because you would think that the more entrenched we get in our screens, the more tools we have to keep our tasks managed. But I feel like it's kind of the opposite where the more we're looking at these screens, the less we want to do every single thing on them. At least that's how I feel. So it kind of makes sense that we're seeing this sort of bifurcation of task management going back to something different than a an app. I kind of like seeing it because I know that there are a lot of benefits one way or the other, but I, I think you're right. There are a lot of people who are realizing that living in a digital world 100% of the time isn't exactly panning out to be what we want it to be. I, I think you and I both see that, and I've been seeing a lot more people who who fall into that camp as well. But it's it's interesting how we spend so much time on screens that at some point you have to get away from them. I mean, a- another way that I've seen this come out is, you know, to use the millennial term, you know, <laughs> there are a large number of millennials who are purchasing like coaching sessions and one-on-one services or, or classes that are in person. It seems like there's quite a resurgence in that lately. So it's been fascinating to watch that happen as well. I wonder if it's some of the same concept, like if it's the same thing where people are seeing that this is not necessarily a good place to be. Right. And I need a little bit of a break from it. That's sort of how I feel. As someone who spends a lot of time in front of a screen, it's good to to get away. 
I sent you a message earlier this week because I was interested in getting a new notebook and you told me the brand of notebook that you had, which I, I still have no idea how to pronounce it. How do you pronounce this thing? Like term. Like term. Like Lick term. Like term. Pretend it's an O-Y. Like term. Like term. Okay, great. I can remember that. That's what I'm going to go with. I'll, I'll infect you with the wrong way to say it, most likely. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> I happened to be at a Barnes & Noble, which I haven't walked into for a very long time, just because I needed to grab something like a, a gift really quick. And they had a whole wall of them. I didn't know that they sold those there. But it just felt like an intentional moment. So I picked one up and I've been writing it every morning. And yeah, I mean, it's it's been a really great experience for me. What I've been trying to do and why I've been using it is because I'm trying to keep myself from reaching for a screen as soon as I wake up and getting into a habit of waking up and going somewhere to do a little bit of writing in a notebook is a very, very excellent way of making sure that that happens. And it's been it's been excellent. So I appreciate the notebook recommendation. And I think this routine is something that's kind of falling in line for me as well. So you spend time every morning just writing a few things on pen and paper? Is there something specific you're writing? Yeah, so it's I've actually been going through the artist's way. Do you know the artist's way? That sounds familiar, but I can't place it. It's a book by Julia Cameron. And it's kind of one of those early kickstart your creativity books. I think the the version that I have is like the 25th anniversary edition. So it's been around for a good while. And that's also where the term morning pages came from. Oh, yeah. That concept of the very first thing that you do in the morning is kind of a brain dump of all of the ideas and maybe anxieties and worries that you would be having and you can just kind of get that out of your system so that you can move forward. And I've known about morning pages for a really long time, but I've never actually read through the artist's way. And uh, my wife and I are both reading it at the same time right now. And we've gotten into the habit of beginning our mornings with this three page routine. And it's intentionally made to be three pages eight and a half by 11 at least, and you have to write it by hand. She's very specific about that. The way that she kind of described it is it's because you're accessing a different part of your brain, in her opinion, where typing is you going 80 miles an hour and writing is you taking a more slow pace going through things. Yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. I, I've seen people talk about the quote-unquote morning pages. Who is it? Tim Ferriss, I think, does this too? Yep, yeah, he does that. And... Is it Maria Popova that does it as well? Brain pickings? I think she does that. I don't know if she does it, but I would be, that seems to fit her personality. Right. This is a concept that I'm aware of. Like I've seen this around, but I've never understood the overarching intent behind it or the motive behind it. So it's, that's a book I'm going to add to my list like right now. Is, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very interesting. And the book is really unique. I just started it a week ago, so I haven't gotten too far in. But I, I love the idea. And even the concept of three pages, she says a page and a half is easy. It's not too difficult to get a page out of your brain. But the third page is particularly difficult, and that's all intentional. And while doing morning pages in this book, in this structure, you're actually not supposed to ever go back and read them until the end of the course. So it's really just intended for you to get something out of your system and then move on. And you will likely pick up on a lot of different patterns as you look back on it in a few months. But it's not something that you're supposed to, you know, read the next morning and kind of pick up all those ideas again. Morning Pages was actually important to me. I heard about it through Tim Ferriss. 
And that was really actually the reason that I started writing a couple of years ago. We've talked about that, I think, on the very first episode we ever did for this. But it was at a time of life where I really just wanted some creative outlet that was exclusively mine. And I had had Extra Textuals, the blog, for a couple of years, but I'd only posted very, very sparingly. And that's what I decided to do was get up every morning and write. And after getting into a habit of doing morning pages every day, I realized, hey, there's some actually pretty good stuff in here. And I could probably figure out a way to Monday through Friday publish something. And I did that for about a year of just publishing consistently every day, just about. And it was really because of building in that routine of morning pages that that happened for me. And now I'm trying to be a little more contemplative with it. I'm not even really intending to do anything with the stuff that I'm writing. Although the craziest thing to me is, man, writing three pages, my hand hurts at the end of it. <laughs> I have like lost those muscles yep. of writing on a on a piece of paper. That was like the hardest part for the first week was getting used to actually writing for that long, which I don't know if I've done since high school. I had a person email me and say that they got into... They picked up a paper task management system, and they were wanting to follow a lot of the way that I do things, which involves a little bit of rewriting it every week. Mm -hmm. And the first time they went through and did the rewrite, they emailed me to say that they were going to send me their bills for RSI because it was wrecking their wrist <laughs> having to rewrite it that way. I think for a lot of people who have gotten really accustomed to typing all day, that whatever those muscles are in the hand, that require you to be able to do a prolonged writing session, have atrophied to the point where they need some love. I'm not quite there yet. I still get a little cramped at the end of every session, which also makes me think that I don't quite know exactly how to write, as silly as that sounds. Isn't it? You're, you're supposed to like move your arm, not your yeah. fingers or even your wrist that much, right? Yeah, and this is a big thing with fountain pen users because some people rest their wrist on the notepad i do this and tend to you know just like what you're saying mm -hmm. like you tend to write that way but i think the the quote-unquote ergonomic best method of using a pen in any form whether it's ballpoint or a fountain pen doesn't matter i think the intended way of doing that is to keep your wrist off of the page and then use your arm to do the writing, which just seems bonkers to me because it just feels so unnatural. Yeah. But I understand it. I mean, it makes sense. I think if I ever took the time to actually sit down and try it, I think I would like it. But at the same time, I have my <laughs> habits and I can get things written very quickly and I don't have to think about it to write it. So why go through the pain of making that adjustment? I don't know. Maybe I should. But I just haven't had the time well i probably had the time i just don't want to <laughs> let's just call a spade a spade i just don't want to yeah i haven't had the real desire to pull up what are those you know um a sheet of a's and b's and c's oh right right i don't know what it's called to, to try and practice my penmanship yep <laughs> yeah I, I don't think i'm gonna ever end up going there so i'll, I'll probably just have my chicken scratch writing and a, a bit of a cramped hand for a while until i get reaccustomed to it Here's the question for you. How do you handle your, your daily list, like what you're going to do today? For the most part, I'm able to schedule everything out from the beginning of the week. That's usually what I do is if I have a big project that I'm working on, because most of what I do right now, well, all of what I do right now is freelance. Saturday or Sunday or Monday, I'll determine everything I need to do for Monday through Friday, and I'll just write it all out and things and make sure I know my deadlines. And a lot of the work that I do 
has a pretty simple nature to it of recurring every week. So it's not like I have to bust out some entirely new plan. Uh, It's really just the little simple tasks like, like we were talking about last week, make a return to the store that you don't want to do stuff like that. That is the harder stuff to schedule. I keep note cards in my back pocket and I, I have grown to using seven, like keeping a one week's worth of note cards in my back pocket at all times with just a little binder clip. And I've just got each day's date at the top. And during my weekly review, I go through and write out the tasks that need to happen on a specific day on that card. And at the end of every day, I just tear that one off because I don't need it anymore, like when I'm done with it, mm-hmm. and transfer anything that I haven't gotten done to the next day, which breaks a few of my own rules by doing that, but that's okay. But the the thing that I'm trying to do is make sure I've got that list with me at all the time. So it actually makes it possible for me to not carry my full notebook with me everywhere. I can just use the note cards that have been in my back pocket that I've been carrying for five years now. Right. So it, it's a thing that I'm... I'm just repurposing a, a tool that I've been carrying around already. How strict are you with your calendar? Do you find yourself really operating off of it, or is that more just for meetings and events and that kind of thing? I, I've been using it a lot, and I keep seven, eight different calendars. I had to pull it up and look. One in particular that pertains to this is a calendar just called Tasks, and it's a different color than like my events that I have to be at. But those are things like take out the trash or text a friend about coffee, you know, write my email newsletter. Like those are things that recur at a regular interval. And I, I'm looking at those when I'm glancing over my calendar for the day. I see those and make sure they're on my note card. That's that's what I'm doing with that. That's how I handle a lot of the the recurring stuff that I I have certain days that they need to happen on. So that's that's what I'm doing with that. But I also keep <laughs> this is gonna sound a little weird, like my morning ritual breakfast and lunch and all that I keep it on its own calendar just called routines because those are those are ones that I like to schedule around them because they're things that I find if I screw with those time blocks they're like the structure of the day that I want to work around but if I screw with them it can really mess with my day so if I do something right at noon it can really mess with my afternoon because I had to go do lunch early and then I got back at you know 1145 so that I could get ready for the noon thing. Mm-hmm. It just messes with it a lot. So I just don't like moving those. So I keep those on my calendar so I know where those are visually without actually looking at the numbers on the side. I like keeping those there, but I do keep like an events calendar that I share with my wife. She's got the same that I have on my calendar. So she's creating her own events on her calendar and they show up on mine. Mine show up on hers. That way we don't book over top of each other those right there that's what i'm that's what i'm using one that's kind of interesting is i keep one called panorama you might be interested in this one it's not necessarily a thing that i know i'm going to do but i just want to be aware of it Hmm. i had a it was fourth of july two years ago yeah i had put on this panorama calendar uh, an air show that was going on over here in wisconsin oh yeah and we uh, weren't sure what we were going to be doing for the 4th of July, so we just didn't we didn't have any locked-in plans for it. So we didn't know if that was a thing we could or couldn't do. But on July 3rd, we realized we don't have any plans tomorrow. 
is there anything going on tomorrow? And I just looked at my calendar and said, oh, there's that air show tomorrow. And sure enough, you could still get tickets. So we booked tickets the night before and went the next day. So it was just kind of a cool thing. But yeah, it, it all comes back to that panorama calendar where, you know, if it's a thing that I have any interest in whatsoever and I can recall to write it down or take a picture of it or something to get it onto my calendar, <laughs> you know, if I get it onto that calendar, that's where it goes. And it's, again, it's not a commitment that I've made. It's just a thing I want to be aware of. In regard to that, that last calendar that you brought up of just things that you keep in your calendar, like breakfast and lunch, right? Uh, for me, the one that that is very, very important, what's really critical on my calendar. And really the only thing that I keep consistently is gym times because Christine and I both try to make sure that we go to the gym every day and uh, it's either 8 a.m. or 5.30 p.m. And it is one of those things where it has become such a good and healthy part of our routine that I always want to make sure that I know that that exists and which one we've picked, whether it's morning or evening, so that the rest of the day can kind of flow around it. And that's how I've always used a calendar is just simple things that I want to remember, oh, I'm going to do that today and I've picked this time. But I, I mean, a lot of people, they schedule everything. They schedule work. They schedule breaks. They schedule sleep. Do you schedule sleep? I do not. I'm not as bad as Gray. Yeah, that's just CGB Gray, right? But I, I, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not how I work. My days are, I think, more free-flowing than that. But I, I mean, I get it. I think that's probably an extremely productive way of planning out every moment of your, your waking life. I just haven't figured it out. It's a bit extreme to go that far like it's you're you're really getting out there when you start putting sleep on your calendar yeah sleep is a bit much maybe but i mean hey that's that's a good it's a good reminder <laughs> oh yeah you go to bed i'm busy right now <laughs> no more time for a reading so you picked up a loik term mm -hmm. do you like that notebook i don't know that you have do you have anything you're comparing it to like is it worth the money i've had the standard stuff i've had little field notes and different kinds of simple notebooks. I've never had a really, really good bound notebook like this one. And I, I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great piece of equipment and feels very good in the hand and nice on the desk. And I mean, hey, man, what more could you ask for? It's known for its paper quality, right? Yes. Yeah, the paper quality, one of the things that's interesting about it is the index that it spells out in the front. That's kind of a unique thing they do. Mm -hmm. But other than that, yeah, it's it's pure quality that you're getting when you do that so the binding the the ribbons for bookmarks like all those little details the page numbers like those are all the pieces that people tend to get pretty excited about i i always feel guilty writing something that i feel is pretty unimportant in a notebook as nice as the loik term though i feel like it just is too intangible to deserve being put in a bound book but that's obviously my own prejudice you want to know how to get over that? Uh, how's that? <laughs> so in the the notebook that I use for task management, I have a, a section at the back. I think I partition off about 100 pages for this. Uh, I just call it thinking. Like there's no, there's no set way I'm supposed to use that. Mm -hmm. The first page, I take my pen and scribble all over it. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been, been doing that myself is in the same way that I don't want to put intangible notes in a beautiful notebook. I often have a hard time starting a fresh notebook, no matter how nice it is, even if it's a piece of crap, because I just feel like, oh, it's this perfect and unused thing, and I have to do something. And yeah, I started just kind of ruining the first page or just putting something on the first page that doesn't have to be long or 
very important or whatever, just to kind of break it in and get past that mental barrier. I think that that even to me speaks of the difference of how I view screens and paper in the sense that a screen, I mean, if I mess up or I don't want something, I just delete it and the screen doesn't change. But the fact that paper changes and changes forever, oh man, I think that messes with me a lot. I actually just read this really interesting book called The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. Have you heard of that book? Uh, yeah, I saw you were posting stuff about this. I Because of your posts, I wrote it on my list, and I'm probably going to pick that one up sooner rather than later because of you. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. Kevin Kelly himself is really fascinating. He was uh, very important in the founding of Wired. He was the founding executive editor. And uh, he's he's had a pretty storied career and been around for a lot of cool and interesting tech stuff. And he's also the person that coined that concept of a thousand true fans. You've heard of that, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was, I was going to say a few years ago, but I think it's a decade ago now. Yeah, it's been a little while. That concept that for anything that you might do in the world, there's there's a thousand true fans out there and you just have to find those thousands. So you don't need to find a million people. But you do need to find a lot of people. But the good news is there's way more than a thousand people in the world. So it's just your responsibility to go and find that thousand, which is a really cool idea. And actually, he did a podcast really recently with Craig Maud, who is an incredible photographer and writer that I really like. And uh, Craig Maud has a new podcast called On Margins, where he talks about book publishing and photography and a lot of different stuff like that. And Kevin Kelly was on his show because Kevin Kelly back in the 1970s or 1980s, I'm not sure which, uh, basically backpacked through all of Asia and took photos throughout his entire experience, just hundreds and hundreds of rolls of photos. So, I mean, he's, he's a really interesting person. He's not some young tech person who thinks that he, he knows exactly what the world is doing and how the world is changing. He's not some old Luddite who thinks that the world won't ever change. He's, he's a really interesting example of someone perfectly in the middle who has seen a lot of change and has also seen a lot of stagnation. Uh, one of my favorite examples is he talks about virtual reality in this book and talks about how he assumed that it would be everywhere by the year 2000. And here we are almost 20 years later, and it still is in its fledgling state and actually kind of had a dormancy period. So He's really, really interesting. And uh, the book, The Inevitable, is about how technology has these inevitable changes that will start becoming more and more clear as time goes on, inevitable ways that they'll change the world. And one of the ways that he brings up is the way that we used to be what he calls people of the book, and we are becoming what he calls people of the screen. In the 1900s and before, the book was everything. And all of the important pieces of American history are wrapped up in books, the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and further back than that, the Bible. And now all of the important things are on screens. And it, it just he had a really fascinating chapter about what it means to be a person of the screen and how that has kind of changed society as a whole. And it just, I mean, the whole thing really fascinated me. Yeah, like as you saw, I think I was just taking pictures of this book and tweeting them because I was finding them so fascinating as I was reading it through. Uh, really, really good. I would love to get your your take on it. Yep. I put it on the list, and who knows when I'll actually get to it. <laughs> that list is long. <laughs> yeah. 
just just one of the things that I think was interesting was he was talking about the difference between book reading and screen reading and how it's a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on the show. Book reading makes you more observant and analytical and keeps you at a slower pace and makes you really look at a thing and study it. And looking at something on a screen encourages you to be not distracted, but less fully engaged and more ready to jump to a new thing or move from one bit of data to another bit of data. And he wasn't saying it as one being better than the other. He was just saying it as a, as a fact that both of them have their benefits and both of them are very different. And it really made me consider these things you know, that we've been talking about and that I've been thinking about and how I've been moving more to paper and what roles I want that to play in my life. Because, I mean, I think this at the end of the day, there's no doubt about it, that we see it as the distraction of the screen. And maybe he would put it in the better way of, it's the, the the rapid pattern making, the ability to go from what I did to the next very, very quickly. But I think that both you and I are saying, but I don't want to do that all the time. I want to be able to sit on an idea and really think on it and study it and and stay there. And there's no there's no doubt paper is better for that. I think it's the classic wide versus deep conversation. Because mm-hmm. I I know that if I don't spend enough time focusing on one thing for an extended amount of time, primarily through reading a book. Like if I don't do that, say for a week, like if I skip reading a book for a week, I am a very different person. Like it's just, it's so hard for me to focus on conversations. I bounce all over the place. Like we would be going back and forth on topics and I would have a hard time sticking with one. Like I just tend to be that way if I don't actively work against the fast switching. Mm-hmm. This is maybe why I'm so interested in the the paper analog side of things and, and stepping away from the screens because it's just a different way of thinking. And I, I see that firsthand in myself. The screens tend to, they tend to encourage a little bit of knowledge about a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, if you take a book, they're expanding on a single idea for a long time. Like most people aren't going to sit down and read a book in a day. There are a lot of books where you can do that, but there are a lot of books where that is not going to happen. You pick up a 700-page monster, very few people are going to be able to read that in one day. Right. Like it's just not going to happen. So it forces you to in most cases spend more than a single day on a topic. And the longer the amount of time you spend on it, the deeper your knowledge about it becomes especially if you start reading numerous books on similar topics. And when you start to do that, you you really do develop this deeper mentality on a specific genre or sector in some form. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But at the same time, it's something that's becoming more and more rare, it seems. At least it has been. I don't know that it is still headed that direction right now because I continue to see people who are... I guess rebelling against that and starting to go the other direction, kind of like what what I'm doing with the paper thing. But I also know that I might be a bit skewed in that because people are telling me that they're doing this because I've done it. So you, it's the whole confirmation <laughs> bias that's going on there. But I, I do think there is a big difference there because if you're so focused on screens, 
it's going to be natural to have a lot of little things happen very quickly, but books force the opposite. Yeah, it's a, it's a more contemplative mind, isn't it? Uh, the way that he puts it is the converse is that screens encourage more utilitarian ways of thinking. And you aren't very likely to pick up a book and by the end of that session, put it down and have read it all and processed it and thought through it and conclude, made a conclusion. But you are very likely to do all of those things when you're in front of a screen. If you read an article or now maybe if you read the headline of an article via a tweet, you have formulated your opinion and created a conclusion almost immediately. And there's something different about the way that paper challenges that ability. And I think that that's something that we all need more of. I don't think there's any other way around it. A great example is that he actually brought up how great ebooks might be in the future. Okay. And I really agree with him. And it was great because you and I, we've had some conversations about ebooks and how they frustrate me and how I love them and how I hate them. We've also had conversations about how I don't like physical books and how I have such a hard time trying to figure out how to take notes well with all of these different systems. His opinion of that is that we're just at the very beginning of ebooks and that ebooks in the future might look very different than they do now. Not only physically, he proposed the idea of a Kindle with dozens of linked together e ink pages, which is a really neat idea. And also brought up the idea of books where they're kind of unshackled from all of the publisher requirements that happen right now when you try to highlight or copy and paste text or any of that stuff. And was talking about how he assumes that sooner or later books will include lots of hyperlinks to different books and different concepts and different chapters and how everything will feel unified because an ebook will feel like it's able to tap into a vast library of information that's outside of that book. And I love that kind of idea, but it definitely doesn't exist right now. And so maybe someday soon we'll have the ability to feel more contemplative with screens. But as it stands right now, there's just no way. Books and paper are so much better at allowing you to just sit and think on a thing than screens are as of right now in our in our world. So you were talking about the uh the e-reader. So with say a Kindle that has a bunch of links and such in it, I don't know that that would help. Like I think that would maybe make it worse. <laughs> Because I think that's it's an interesting concept of having a lot of this information right here together. Like, it's all in one place. I get that. But the piece about a physical book that I like is there's one line, like one thread that you're following for an extended amount of time. And if I alter that by bouncing to a link and then coming back to it, I've broken my line of thinking and my, my focus on that thread that this author is taking me through. So I, I'm a bit nervous about something like that simply because it doesn't maintain this single thread that the author wants me to follow. If they want me to bounce somewhere else and read a thing and then come back, like sometimes you'll see authors like, put this book down, go read this, and then come back to this. Like sometimes I'll see that. I will actually do that if I can. Right. Because I feel like they want me to follow that line and I want to follow the line they're creating. If there's a bunch of links that get thrown in that's not put there by the original author, I feel like it breaks that. Like, it breaks that relationship that has been created. Maybe I'm a bit crazy. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned brain pickings, and I think of that as a great example of it, where she'll always read a book 
and whenever that book will reference some other book or bring up something that has an idea that she read recently in another book, she'll kind of cross-reference those two ideas. And I think of those links within books in this proposed future world as more of a replacement for end notes and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if every single word, if it looks like a Wikipedia page where everything of note is highlighted, that that seems a bit <laughs> crazy. But I mean, I I love the idea. I just was reading a book called The Goldfinch. It's a fiction novel that became kind of famous earlier this year. And it referenced a, a work of art, which is what the, the title of the book is based on, that I had never seen before. And I like concepts of when the book has some reference that it's trying to teach you, to bring you in, to make sure that you and the author are on the same page, a world where that's much easier than it is right now. Because there's just no no doubt about it. That's not something that's very easy to do on a screen or paper right now, which is a shame. It, it shouldn't be that way. And I don't think it will be for long. Yeah, I could get behind that. At least Kevin Kelly tells me so. <laughs> yeah, I can get behind something like that. I mean, it, again, it's coming back to what is the line and what is the the path that this creator has made for me to follow. And whether that's written words on a page or if that is a a piece of artwork that I am trying to comprehend or working my way through, like it doesn't matter what that path is as long as there is a little bit of creativity that's required on my end and a single thread that this person has laid before me to follow like that's what I tend to to come back to on it speaking of books have you been reading anything good this is a a conversation that I I've had with a few people should you finish a bad book ultimately it comes down to a lot of people if they see that a book is not interesting or is difficult to read for them they put it down and move on and say that it is the author's responsibility to keep me interested and I don't disagree with that. I think they should. At the same time, I know that, you know, per the conversation you and I just had a little bit ago about sticking with a single thread uh, on an author's line. So when I come across a bad book, it's one that I, I see it as a challenge to force myself to develop that focus muscle. Like, I want to work through it because it's something that's going to teach me something. Like, it's going to give me the focus to work through things even when I don't want to. I think that's why I'm that way. Like I want to build that even if it's not fun. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell you, you need to finish every book you pick up. Like I'm not going to tell you that. That's just the way I come at it. So I guess that would be my question to you is, do you do this? I think that even the concept of what it means to finish a book is a bit up in the air to me. There's been a few books that I've read recently. I went to the library not too long ago and checked out maybe 15 or 20 books on business and entrepreneurship and some different stuff just because I was researching a couple of ideas and and wanted some input from authors. And I think that there are certain times where with nonfiction business books, the idea of reading it from cover to cover isn't necessarily the same to me as finishing it. Like, I have felt as if I have completed books, even though I have skimmed sections and skipped over others, because I feel like I've understood the author's intent enough that I have understood the core ideas of the book. And sometimes I just feel as if there are books out there that have a very, very, very good idea, 
but that idea has been padded out into an entire book that it could have been reduced down to something smaller. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think in some of those cases, I would say I finished that. I didn't read it entirely, but I finished it. And so that to me is a, is an important distinction between what it actually means to read through something that might not be the, the greatest use of your time. It does. It does. And at the same time, it's like, okay, well, have I finished it? If I read every word, but I haven't written my own reflection on it, like <laughs> the, that would be the next level is like, okay, well, right. after I've read the book, is there a series of things that I want to do with it before I call it quote unquote finished? Yeah. And I think for me, it's not that far. Like I, there's not a thing I have to do after the fact to say it's finished. But I think for, for me, I would tend to say it's finished if I read the vast majority of it and I, I have comprehended it. There are times I'll skim stuff just because it's like, really? This is a 400-page book and the first 200 pages is introducing the concept. The second 200 pages is showing me how to put it in place when you alluded to it the entire first half. Right. Like that gets frustrating sometimes and I'll skim a lot of the second half but still call it finished. But I try not to do that. Like it's it's kind of rare that I'll go that far with it. Yeah, I think the way that I the way that I kind of consider is if I find a book that feels tonally wrong to me, uh, which I've done a few times, especially with business books, where I'm like, man, I just do not really enjoy this author's voice enough to to keep going forward. Then that that's usually the the time that I'll put it down early. But usually, what I'll do is any book that I pick up, I will try to glean something of interest out of it. And I will read far enough through it or throughout the entire thing to try and find those points that really intrigue me. The Inevitable is actually a great example of that, where I didn't really feel all too engaged with the first chapter because it was talking about inevitable piece of technology that I feel is very obvious. So it wasn't like super intriguing to me. And so I just kind of started skimming over it until I got to the second chapter, which was about screens, which we just discussed quite a bit. So you know that I'm quite into it. We like this topic. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, I, I, I feel like if I would have put the book down in the first chapter, I would have missed out on so much, but also I didn't feel compelled to now that I loved the book, go back and laboriously read every single word. I just kind of move forward. So, I, I mean, that that's the way that I view it. I try my best to get as much as possible out of the book. I mean, that, that's the cool thing about books, right? That's It's different than a movie. I'm not going to watch a movie and just, ah, this part's kind of boring and like fast forward <laughs> through it <laughs> because that'd be kind of weird. That's where the punchline sits most likely. <laughs> Although, I mean, funny enough, isn't that kind of what's happening with like YouTube and stuff now? I think that there's like little heat maps that show you where people are watching stuff on like long yes. live stream videos yes. where the most comments are and that kind of stuff. So, hey, but for now, I mean, that's how I view books is... I just, I try to get, try to get what I can get out of any of them. And I think that there's usually something beautiful in them. And no matter what, no matter how different your opinion might be or how much of a bore you might find a chapter to be, I guarantee you that in an average book, if you keep going long enough, you'll find some highlight that just really catches your breath and really resonates with you. And you have the book in your hands, you might as well get far enough to find that and then you can feel free to discard the rest if you if you really must. But yeah, man, you gotta you gotta get through a book at least at least a good portion of it before you put that away. Yeah, I think it's Sean Blanc that says that a book is successful if he gets one thing out of a book. And I, I would say that. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing I pick up out of a book, even if it's confirming a thing that I already know, 
if it's just affirming that, yes, I know that paper is the way for me to go. Like, if that's what I get out of that, to me, that's worth it. Like, that's worth the book. There are very few books that I read the whole thing and wonder, what did I just do? Like, that, <laughs> that just doesn't really happen. Like, there's usually a thing that it will teach me or show me that, yep, not going to do that ever because what they're explaining is not what I want to do like there's some of that but it still taught me even if it's the opposite of what they intended it still taught me something and I see that as a success but at the same time like I I have a hard time like I have a hard time skimming in a book just because I've I've been through scenarios now where I wanted to skim it because it was getting dry and I did my force myself through it thing and picked something up that I was not expecting as a result of doing it. So I've I've done that enough to know that if I feel like I should skim it, there's a decent chance that there's something in there I'm going to miss if I do or if I skip a section. I just hesitate to do that. I do because I've seen so many things come up in those moments and I wasn't expecting it there. You ever browse the aisles of your local library to find new books to read? I don't, which is kind of weird, I guess. I tend to just go off of, like, every book has its recommendations for other books in it. Yeah. I've got a fun little note that I'm keeping currently in, uh, where's it at? I think it's in Ulysses right now. And I've got a note of uh, a, a book about books. So <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever do this, but I'm considering writing a book about books that I've read. And it'd be kind of a fun idea. But one of the things that's in there is, you have to mention a series of books and you have to mention Apple and Steve Jobs. Like those are the things like if you're going to write a book, that's what you have to do. <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. I think I've been through 42, 43 books this year. I know you're quite the you're quite the bookworm too. Hmm. But it, you read a bunch of them and you start to find patterns in them. One of my favorite pages on the internet is Derek Sivers. Do you know who that is? Oh yeah, I'm on his newsletter. Cool dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really like him a lot. And uh, he has a page, sivers.org slash book, where he just updates and has detailed notes for all of the books that he's read and has really enjoyed. And I mean, it is hundreds and hundreds of books. And you can even sort it by title or sort by best, like he does little reviews. And it's just a really fascinating place. I mean, and his notes are long. They're not like a little blurb. It's paragraphs and paragraphs for each of those books. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea. I've not gone that far, but I guess I kind of get away with it with having a whole podcast on books. Maybe that counts. Right. <laughs> so half the books I read end up on that show. So it, it kind of acts as a chronicle of that. It's not a thing that's easily searchable for the notes that are shared on you. Like you'd have to listen to each one of those episodes to pick stuff up on. So it wouldn't it wouldn't fulfill your high input thing. No, no, it wouldn't. Which, I mean, man, that's something that I'm really trying to figure out because we've talked about it a few times. It's something that I, it, it's becoming more and more clear within me. And I think that I'm trying to figure out at this time how to keep myself from spending too much time on capturing input and everything. Because this is the thing, right? And this has actually been really helpful with drafts that you have helped me figure out in my life and, and include in my life is whenever I read something that I love, I want to stop everything that I'm doing and like copy that down. But sometimes that can be pages and pages. Right. And that is not necessarily a great use of my time. Or I could take a picture of it, 
But that doesn't necessarily seem like a great use of my time either, because then I can never find it again. <laughs> and yes. It'll be gone <laughs> and very, very challenging to, to pick back up. And then if I do want to write something or do something with that text, that's the moment that I'll have to transcribe it. And I'm just trying to get less caught by those moments where I want to want to remember something or write something down. And I think part of it is just killing a bit of the perfectionism that comes with it. Because a great example is when I hear a, a quote in a podcast, I do everything that I possibly can to record that quote perfectly. Like the words that they used, the commas that might appear, all of that. And I'm realizing that just isn't worthwhile. It's much better for me to, in that moment, be able to get a facsimile of that quote than it is to spend two or three minutes perfectly writing out a 20-second or 10-second clip. And I don't know. It's like there's just a part of me that's recognizing at this point I need to make peace with that bit inside of me that needs input. And I need to be able to figure out how to get that down but at the same time, I need to not give into it so completely that it takes up way too much time every single time that I'm trying to capture that bit of information. And figuring that out has been a lot more challenging than I thought it might be. I guess a question for you is with all this input that you want to collect, what do you do with it? Is it just a thing that you want to have it or is it a thing that you have an exact thing that you're planning to do with it. Because, I mean, there are things like, you know, the whole book thing, like the app that I tend to use for scanning is Scanner Pro. It's Readle's thing. Mm -hmm. And it does a an OCR on the spot, and it allows you to show that text. You could copy it right there and paste it, like, into drafts. Like, you can do that. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> but this is, a, this is a thing that you can do. And, you know, I, I've done a little bit of testing with it, and it's fairly accurate like it's enough that i would be comfortable using it but it's not perfectly accurate and that's the problem it's not perfect no and i i get that and then i have to go back and edit all those pieces which takes a long time why why do you have to go back and edit it exactly well that, that's my <laughs> point is i don't have to okay that's my point and i think that this is even a part of it and that's why drafts has been really helpful is i'm starting to say oh, okay well if i if i have this idea for something that i'm writing then i can stop and write that quote out, and it'll sit in drafts, and it'll be ready for me. But if it's something like like this right now, where I read The Inevitable, and I don't have anything I want to write about The Inevitable, I just really liked those ideas, and I want to keep them and remember them, because I think they're very, very important and something that really resonates with me, then I need to figure out a better way of doing that. So this way, I used that good old piece of technology that came in iOS 11 that I was excited about, which was just uh, scanning a few pages. And I scanned the pages, and I just moved on. So this, this, is, this is what I'm talking about, is I think just a few weeks ago, I would have had a much more difficult time scanning something into a photo and moving on. But I think I know now that I need to do that more so that I can have more time to do something. And what you were even just saying about a book is such a great example of it isn't a great feeling to constantly be pulled out of an idea that you're really enjoying. So when I enjoy something, I don't want to pull myself out of it by having to take notes and write it perfectly and perfectly transcribe it. I would rather just snap a picture and call it good. Maybe a better way of coming about this all is to reference what Craig Maud said recently. He was talking about how there is this thing that happens where you feel the need to, especially with social media, 
and Twitter and screens. Get an idea out there as fast as possible. It's this weird network that has created the ability for you to constantly get positive affirmation to very simple and pithy thoughts. And his concept was, but what if that thing needed to be evolved? Sometimes that thing that you posted as a tweet, maybe you shouldn't have posted it as a tweet because it was supposed to be an essay. And by you posting it as a tweet really quickly and moving on from it, you've kind of done yourself a disservice. And I think that there's a part of that high input inside of me that's constantly wanting to not just record, but to in some way publish the things that I love. And I'm trying to do less of that and more and more find space to ruminate on a concept and let it just simmer. Part of that is figuring out a methodology of collecting input that doesn't require me to publish immediately. I, I think that even just something as simple as figuring out a less perfect way, a less time-consuming way, has moved me along in that task of figuring it out a bit more. I'm trying to remember the the philosopher that did this, but I think it was Erasmus that did it. it I, I'm failing to recall the exact name, so apologies on that. The concept that he went through, because he, he had a whole thing on how to read a book, and you see this come up quite a bit from place to place. I've debated it with uh, my co-host on Bookworm, Mike, uh, a couple times of doing an episode on how to read a book and how do we go about doing that. And one of the things that I think it was Erasmus that he did was he broke a book up into sections. In today's world, we would just use chapters. But at the end of every chapter, he would stop and write a paragraph of what he learned from it or what he got out of it. And then he would pick the book back up and, and keep reading. And he would do that at the end of every chapter hmm. with the intent of using that as a way to synthesize the ideas into his own words, for one. And two, it ended up creating a record for him to go back to in the future. That seems like something that you might be interested in, but it's not going to get you away from the cutting back on the amount of time this is going to take. It's going to add time. So, whoops. But it is more of a ritual and a meditative, contemplative process that I think my current one misses out on a lot. So I, I like that. That's a that's a neat way of doing it. And if you really wanted, you could publish it when you're done too. <laughs> I'm not helping you at all, am I? <laughs> I'm making this worse. No, that was that was absolutely the opposite of what I needed, <laughs> but it's exactly what I wanted. 